It's been so long. So long. Three weeks since we have recorded. It feels like a lifetime. I hope it doesn't feel that long for you guys because there were there were two new episodes and then a rerun. Yeah, we really only I took like a week off. And yeah. the rerun was a really, really old one. Yes. <laughs> Which was nice and weird to listen to. Very weird. And, and probably two people who like people were like, why haven't they covered Ada Lovelace and <laughs> Athena? It's like, we have. We did. It's just fucking five years ago. I promise. I also figured out how to put a search bar on our yes. website so we can find things now. Big ups. And this then is I exciting. think I tried to update it so that there's 300 episodes on our Apple instead oh, of 100. I tried. Oh, that's great. I've been like searching around and trying to figure out answers to all of our all earthly of our problems. <laughs> <laughs> but it's happening. A lot of stuff is happening here on her street. On the with Katie and Allie. This is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history. We talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance. But keep in mind, we are drinking the entire time. And we are not historians. No. We do our very, very best. We do our research, but we fall short a couple times and that's fine. Yes. Just let us know. Yeah. Just let us know. Especially New Year. Be oh nice about gosh. it. Yes. <laughs> this is our first episode of the year. We made it all the way to January 4th without recording. That's crazy. It is. <laughs> I don't know even what's happening. Yeah. This is also going to be my first drink of the year because I'm doing nice. dry-ish January. I like that. Last year, I lied to you all and didn't yes. drink during the podcast. <laughs> this year, I'm not going to lie. I'm just going to drink on Thursdays. Okay. Perfect. Make it real life. Godspeed. <laughs> we'll see if it works. Yeah. Well, you guys are also doing a dry-ish January. So you're in the store and you're trying to find replacements for your typical imbibing. LaCroix. Mm-hmm. Pineapple juice. Sure. Uh, without vodka. You know, you're just... <laughs> they sell it like that usually. They do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you're busy. So you don't want to take up your precious time and look on your phone to see what these women look like. So we're going to describe them for you. We're going to get a little physical, physical. Allie, who are you doing and what does she look like? I am doing Margaret Eloise Knight. And Margaret had curly shoulder length brown hair with a very sweet face, smile and eyes. There is really only one super famous picture of her and it's in her youth, probably her mid 20s to early 30s. And uh, then there's a few more of her when she's older, once Mm -hmm. she had kind of gotten a little bit more fame. In the famous picture, she's wearing a white V-neck quarter sleeve shirt and giving the camera a little smile and she's got quite cute dimples on her cheeks and a dark lip and long arching eyebrows she's very very pretty this is so funny because i was making the list for season 17 and i put her on there because i didn't think we had done her yet what margaret e knight yeah i put her on the list for next season because i did we're doing her right now That's so funny. I'm really glad we had this conversation. I thought you were like, uh, you're glad we're yeah. recording this <laughs> yeah. podcast that we plan to do. Um, yeah, I thought you were like, oh, we've done her already. And I was like, shit. No, uh, okay. we were about to do her twice. Okay, good. Thankfully, we're That not. hasn't happened yet. It's yeah. going to happen. It's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So this week I am doing Martha Gellhorn. So Martha, we haven't done. Who we have not done for sure. <laughs> Martha had platinum blonde hair that was always kind of down to her shoulders, very wavy and clipped up just a little bit around her forehead. She had a long oval face that was kind of flat with a long straight nose, small wide set eyes and high cheekbones. She was often wearing smart but practical pantsuits or disguising herself as a nurse to get on the front lines of a battlefield. Ooh, sneaky. Yeah. When you like she was so beautiful and like just like smart looking and like I don't know, she looks like a celebrity but I couldn't place who. Mm. Um but yeah, so that is what Martha looks like. So exciting. <laughs> Can you tell me what I'm drinking? Yes, so this is called a citation sour because she has a great quote about a footnote that we'll get into. Okay. Um, but I didn't want to name the cocktail something about a footnote. No, that's weird. Yeah. I didn't like the foot in there. So <laughs> citation sour. So it is bourbon, juice from half a lime, a teaspoon of orange marmalade, and a sprinkle of cinnamon. Mm. Yay. Cheers. First drink of the year. Cheers. <laughs> mm, it was worth the wait. Mm, that's all right. I like it. Not bad. It almost tastes like there's um sour mix in there for mm-hmm. like a whiskey sour. Yeah, but there's not. It's just no, the it's lime great. juice. I mm. like that a lot. Mm. 
All right. Cinnamon gives it a nice kick. I have mm-hmm. no idea of anything about this person. Perfect. <laughs> you do not have to ask me that question. I'm entirely <laughs> unsure. <laughs> Except that, like, I feel like this is episode's going to be, like, Bible characters because it's Martha and Margaret. Oh, my God. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> We're going to get wild tonight. Yep. <laughs> so I got most of this information from the Biographics YouTube channel. Great resource, as usual. Mm. And Wikipedia. So... Martha Gellhorn was born on November 8, 1908, in St. Louis, Missouri. Her mother, Edna Fischel Gellhorn, was a well-known suffragette. She was one of the founders of the National League of Women Voters, and she was a staunch supporter of racial equality. In fact, in 1919, she cast the deciding vote in a vote held by the St. Louis League of Women Voters that would allow African-American women to serve on the board. Oh, so she's on the right side of history. Yes. Thank and, you, Martha. And two years later, she left a group and took a bunch of women with her because they were refusing women of color entry to the Ooh, group. So nice. Martha's mother is like definitely, thankfully, on the right side. <laughs> and Martha's father, George, was a gynecologist and very supportive of his wife's ambitions. <laughs> This meant, unlike many girls of her time, Martha grew up in a very feminist household. When she was just seven years old, she participated in the Golden Lane. This was a rally for women's suffrage at the Democratic Party's 1916 National Convention in St. Louis. Women carrying yellow parasols and wearing yellow sashes lined both sides of the main street leading to the St. Louis Coliseum. Martha and another girl, Mary Tossig, stood in front of the line representing future women voters. Oh, and she's like, what? What'd you say, seven or eight? She's seven. That's so cute. I know. Out with the suffragettes. Can you picture her? She's got no front teeth. Yep. That's so adorable. She wants a hippopotamus for Christmas, and she wants votes for women. I mean, those are the only two things a girl can dream for. So, in 1926, Martha graduated from John Burroughs School in St. Louis and enrolled in Bryn Mawr College, uh, which was female miles outside of philadelphia but college simply wasn't for her hmm. she failed a few classes saying she was bored and left without having graduated to pursue a career as a journalist and she did manage to get a few articles published in the new republic then for a few months she worked as the sole female reporter for the albany times union this job included the police beat where she spent time examining corpses in the morgue <laughs> A dream of mine, honestly. (laughs) Unfortunately, she also had to evade the attention of the city editor uh, and earned the nickname The Blonde Peril because she refused his advances. (laughs) So she used this momentum to apply for a job as a foreign correspondent in Paris, and she was hired at the United Press. And by 1930, she is 22 and living a lovely little life in Paris. That sounds like a television show. I know. 22 (laughs) years old, single. Yeah. Being Martha like a in journalist Paris. in Paris, <laughs> that's a, in 1922. This is between 1930. She is 30. Mm-hmm. Okay, but it's between the wars. Yes. At the very mm-hmm. least. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> you don't want to be in Paris any earlier or later than that. No. <laughs> um, so she is having a good time until she again becomes the victim of sexual harassment at her new job as well. A man who was in a higher position demanded that she sleep with him in order to get a raise, and she refused. And then she reported him to the higher ups and she was fired. Oh, no. <laughs> Martha, of course, is not going to give up. So she continued living in Paris and she spent years traveling Europe, writing for newspapers um, from Paris in St. Louis and covering fashion for Vogue. No way. Uh-huh. Just like Jackie Kennedy. Uh-huh. <laughs> <Then> Almost she- <laughs> did. <laughs> then she became very active in the pacifist movement and wrote about her experiences in her 1934 book, What Mad Pursuit. So now she's a writer, a traveler, and a published author. During this time, she had an affair with a left-wing journalist, Bertrand de Jovenel. But when she got pregnant and Bertrand's wife refused to grant him a divorce, she decided maybe it's time to move back to the U.S. for a bit. So she comes back home, gets an abortion, and sets out to find a new job. And it didn't take long for a man named Harry Hopkins, a deputy for President Roosevelt, to recognize her talent and he hired her as a field investigator for the Federal Emergency Relief Administration. Okay, so I have questions. Uh She comes home, and this is so... It's in the 30s or 40s if Roosevelt's in office. Yeah, this is 1934. So the abortion's illegal. Oh, for sure. Okay, so it's just like 
totally unsafe or she found somebody. We don't we know. Don't know. That's yeah. all we know is All we know happened. is she got an abortion when she came home. Okay, so now she's going to be a field journalist. Yes, for the um, government. For FIRA. Okay. Uh, this was the organization started by Roosevelt to help end the Great Depression. So this mm-hmm. was like his answer. He's like, we got to send people out there, figure out what's going on and how to solve this. So Martha traveled around the United States for FIRA to report on how the Depression was affecting the real people who lived in the country. Right. <laughs> um, and she even worked with Dorothea Lang, a photographer, to document the everyday lives of the hungry and homeless. Hmm. And if you don't recognize Dorothea's name, you definitely know her most famous picture called Migrant Mother. So this is the picture of the worried mother with her children's faces buried in her neck and an infant in her lap. It's like her hand is like up by her chin. You know the one I'm talking about. I do. Yes. Because I went to the museum where it was and that room was closed that day. No. I was like, are you <laughs> kidding me? Well, I didn't know that that photo was taken by a woman. No, I didn't Which either. I think is cool. Mm-hmm. And also... Martha was right there with her while she was taking the photo and like helping her interview this family. Even better. Even better. Um, so their reports became part of the official government files for the Great Depression. I mean, how cool is it that you Google the Great Depression and that photo pops up? Right. Every single time. So anyways, these two girls were able to investigate topics that were not usually open to women of the 1930s. And Martha interviewed around five families per day and wrote about their experiences with poverty, hunger, disease, and so much more. And she drew on her research to write a collection of short stories called The Trouble I've Seen in 1936. While she was in Idaho doing FIRA work, Martha convinced a group of workers to stand up against their crooked boss. (laughs) Unfortunately, this turned into a bit of a riot, resulting in some broken windows, and Martha was fired from FIRA, and they tried to label her as a communist. I mean, but she's gotten pretty used to like standing up against the man at this yes. point yeah she was like i don't care about the consequences right um but thankfully the roosevelts had been kind of following martha and her career and they believed her side of the story they refused to let her get labeled as a communist and they even went in and apparently they removed the crooked bosses from this company good i for know them. So Eleanor had been a fan of Martha's writing for quite some time now, and she had a great idea. She said, since you don't have a job and we're not paying you to travel around the country anymore and you haven't had a home in a while, why don't you just come and live at the White House with us and write for me? (laughs) This is like what happens in House of Cards where the journalist just kind of like (laughs) starts living with the Underwoods. Yes, of course it is. So off she went to Washington, where she spent evenings helping Eleanor write correspondence and the My Day column in Women's Home Companion. I was going to say, Eleanor was kind of a journalist herself. Mm-hmm. Okay. So she is kind of stepping in to help her. She's like assisting the FLOTUS in yes. that way. Mm-hmm. Martha was thrilled with the opportunity to work in the White House for Eleanor fucking Roosevelt, but soon found the subject matter to be a little boring. Dry, dry, dry. <laughs> She wanted to write about hard-hitting news firsthand, not just reiterate what other people were saying about it. Mm -hmm. She was like, I want to be the first person reporting on shit. So she thanked the Roosevelts for their kindness and moved on. She continued her freelance writing, and then in 1936, things took another turn for the interesting when she met a very famous man. So she's on vacation in Florida with her parents, and she decides to get a drink at a local haunt called Sloppy Joe's. Inside, there was a drunk, loud, dirty man telling wild stories. She was pretty irritated. And when she locked eyes with him across the room, she was shocked to realize that it was the very famous writer, Ernest Hemingway. (gasps) Here he is. Here he is. Just hanging out. The two began talking and realized that they both admired each other's writing since they both had pretty similar styles. So I didn't really realize this until this week, but like, Hemingway is very famous as like a men's men's writer. Like he's very masculine. He doesn't use a lot of flowery language. He likes to cut to the chase. And that's what Martha liked to do. She's mm. like, there's a problem. Here's the problem. Like, <laughs> I am not beating around the bush here. She doesn't <laughs> floof it up. No, she doesn't. Um, and the instant chemistry between the two was wildly apparent. And they obviously wanted to see each other again. But Martha had just been hired to report for Collier's Weekly on the Spanish Civil War. Mm. Hemingway said, that's perfect because I was going to head there myself to write a script for a documentary called This Spanish Earth. So they went together. <laughs> and along with other documentary crew members and journalists, they all lived together at the Hotel Florida in Madrid. 
The two seemed to complement each other and that they were both ready to pick up and head off to the next adventure, even though Hemingway was picking up and leaving his second wife, Pauline, to be with Martha. Yikes. <laughs> but a lot of people didn't like Pauline and thought she kind of deserved this because apparently Ernest Hemingway was married to a woman and Pauline just like saw Hemingway and was like, I want to be with him, which I do kind of understand because he is very handsome. I didn't realize that Ernest Hemingway was so handsome. Well, <laughs> didn't, I saw pictures of him this week. Didn't <laughs> Ernest Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald have like a quasi like I think I think so. Yeah, he was like I think Fitzgerald might have had feelings for him there's some sort of something where oh, either feelings or he was very jealous of him because mm. he was getting all the notoriety i think they had something when we did um zelda zelda's uh -huh. story hemingway came up in it a couple times okay that makes sense um so he was married this girl pauline wanted to be with him so she befriended his first wife and like gained her trust and then seduced her husband while pretending to be friends with her it was like really fucked up the way that she did it that's terrible yeah. and also my biggest fear i know i know because like, people do that stuff i'm like yes people are conniving not just women men too like yes. are conniving to get the relationship they want yeah crazy yeah so people were like mm, don't really care about him leaving pauline for martha mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so anyways they're in Spain, and then they were off to China to cover the Second Sino-Japanese War. And then in 1938, she was back in Europe covering something she thought was very important, the rise of Adolf Hitler and the movement of the Nazis in Czechoslovakia and Finland. So her and Hemingway often traveled together, but if they couldn't, uh, they wrote letters back and forth. We have so many letters between the two of them. But Hemingway wanted to provide a little bit more stability to the relationship, so he bought a 15-acre estate in Cuba for the two of them. He divorced his second wife and married Martha in Florida in 1940. And this is when things started to fall apart a bit. <laughs> Martha, of course, spent time in Cuba with Hemingway, but then there was a war going on <laughs> in the 40s. It was a pretty big one. So she had to travel to cover it. And Hemingway was not traveling as much anymore. He was staying at home to write and drink and fish. <laughs> he was getting lonely in his tropical paradise and even took up a very strange hobby of breeding six-toed cats. And soon hmm. it was just him and way too many six-toed cats on this big estate in Cuba. Wow. Mm -hmm. And I mean, wh where are you going to be? You're going to, she's all over following the war. Uh -huh. And then as soon as this war ends, like almost instantaneously like cuba kind of becomes an enemy yeah that's this is not good placement for the this no, couple it's not. <laughs> so hemingway obviously started to get a little stir crazy and started to resent martha putting her career over him he began questioning her and asking her why she couldn't be a more nurturing figure in his life and wondered why she couldn't stay home so that he could go off on his adventures and come home to her cooking dinner for him he figured that after the wedding, she would embrace her role as a housewife and hopefully a mother. But this idea of her life, according to Hemingway, was news to her. She like she's like, what the fuck? We just got married, and now all of a sudden, you want me like home all the time to and change. like bearing your children? Like, yeah, no way. She's like, this has never been the relationship, and I've never said that I wanted this. I've never given you an inkling of a warning yeah. that that was going to happen. Exactly. Um. So she's off covering the Italian front in 1943, and he writes to her, are you a war correspondent or wife in my bed? And she tells him, as long as there are wars in the world, I will cover them. Because if no one puts it down on the record anywhere, then the monsters win. She's like, yeah. Okay. <laughs> she's got a job so, forever then. Yeah. Martha continued covering the war, and Hemingway stayed in Cuba and did his part by sailing around in a little boat with a bunch of grenades in case he ran into a German U-boat. Hmm. And then the plans for the invasion at Normandy Beach were announced, and Martha secured her press pass immediately from Collier's Magazine. She was like, I have to be there. This, she was like, this is going to be fucking huge. So then an old friend, Roald Dahl, <laughs> who apparently is good friends with Martha, uh, even arranged a deal for her. He was like, I am going to get your plane ticket paid for by the Royal Air Force in exchange for you writing positively about them in your piece. And she's like, fantastic. Like, I love this. I have a press pass. I have my boarding ticket. Like, let's go. And then Hemingway really becomes a prick. 
he was jealous of this opportunity Martha had, so he marched into the Collier office and demanded Martha's press pass for himself and her ticket. The magazine couldn't exactly refuse the famous writer Ernest Hemingway, so he was given the pass and the ticket. Well, that's going to be that. That's the end of the relationship. You break up with somebody at that point. Yeah. Divorce time. Sucks. But if you haven't realized yet, Martha doesn't take these kinds of things laying down. So she decided that she was going to cover D-Day, whether Hemingway liked it or not, whether she had permission to or not. So she dressed up as a Navy nurse and stowed away in the bathroom of a warship headed for Europe. Hemingway obviously got there a little quicker (laughs) than Martha, so he spent the first part of his assignment partying in Paris and cheating on Martha with a woman named Mary Welsh, who would become his fourth wife. And working together with a ragtag group of rebels, he tried to liberate the Hotel Ritz because it was, like, his favorite bar in Paris. Like, I know there was a ton more to, like, this particular story, but that's what I was reading about it. He was like, I liberated the Ritz. They were like, okay sure you did i'd rather you did like a hospital or something right i'd rather like (laughs) go cover normandy like the reason you're here in the first place like go talk to the soldiers (laughs) um so he's in paris and by the time martha made it to liverpool she was ready to confront her dastardly husband and this actually was ended up being kind of easy for her because he was currently laying in a hospital in london after surviving a car crash that he had caused by drunk driving Mm. When she saw him, he was drinking whiskey with a huge gash in his head, telling wild stories to his fans, just like the day she met him. And she was like, yeah, I'm over it. And so she ended the relationship. He hadn't (laughs) grown even a little bit. But there was obviously still work to be done. And without her press pass, Martha used her nurse outfit yet again to sneak onto the front lines at the beaches of Normandy. And to her credit, You know, she got out there and she was obviously observing everything. And then she was helping fallen soldiers get off the battlefield because she's like, I mean, I'm dressed as a nurse. Like, I got to do some fucking nursing. Got to do something. Yeah. Can't just stand around. Exactly. And now she is cemented in history as the only woman present on the front lines at D-Day, which is very cool. It is. Who was behind them? Victoria Hall was on the other side, right? She was like behind enemy lines. Oh, I was cutting like tanks over on the side of the road the other day because I saw a plaque for her. No way. Where? In the wild out in Parkton, I think. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So I pulled over and I took a really terrible quality photo. That's fine. We got to put it on our story. Her story on the road. Um, So anyways. Then she was off the, to the Dachau concentration camps. She was one of the first women to arrive on the scene when it was liberated by the Allies. And the scene of the gaunt, near lifeless Jewish prisoners next to the well-fed German soldiers absolutely haunted her. But she did what she was sent there to do, and she wrote about her experience. And this is where her writing style was so important. She was frank and straightforward about the horrors that she saw. She didn't want anyone misunderstanding or misremembering what was happening in the concentration camps. Mm. Um, She also did not waste any time filing for a divorce from Hemingway when she got back to the States because she wouldn't take the chance of anyone trying to stop her from talking about the atrocities of war and the Holocaust. His response was writing her a bunch of nasty letters, calling her a phony and pretentious bitch, and he was on a mission to destroy her reputation, Mm. which has still had ripple effects today on her character. Many people who love Ernest Hemingway refer to her as a fame-hungry woman who only used Hemingway for his connections. When, in fact, she hated that the whole thing happened because she couldn't get out from under his umbrella. This is a woman who was on the scene of nearly every major conflict in the 20th century, and all people ever want to talk about with her was Hemingway. This became such a problem that she eventually only granted interviews if they agreed to not even mention her name. Mm, It's like a Marky Mark situation. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She said, I've been a writer for over 40 years. I was a writer before I met him, and I was a writer after I left him. Why should I merely be a footnote in his life? So that's why I called the cocktail Citation Sour. (laughs) So after the Hemingway business, she decided to remain single for a few years and just really focus on her career. 
1949, she visited Rome where she met uh, children who had been injured and lost limbs from accidentally stepping on landmines left over from oh, the war. God, that's distressing. Yeah, and orphans who had lost their parents. And she ended up writing a piece about them called The Children Pay the Price for the Saturday Evening Post, which opened up a lot of people's eyes to what happens when wars are over and how children are affected during and after wars. She was so, so struck by these children that she even ended up adopting one a boy named Sando, who she renamed George Alexander, but everyone called Sandy. She loved Sandy and desperately wanted to give him a better life, but Martha was unfortunately not the best mom. (laughs) After Hemingway, she wasn't going to let anyone get in the way of her career, so she was gone for long periods of time. Sandy most often stayed with his grandparents, but when he was old enough, he was sent to boarding school. And as he got older, he became very bitter towards Martha, which, you know, he kind of had every right to. Yeah. You adopt me and then you totally abandon me. Right. Don't come see me. Um, But she wasn't always a bad maternal figure. In fact, Hemingway's son, Jack, once said of Martha, she was my favorite other mother. (laughs) (laughs) You got to pick one. You have so many. Um. And, of course, you know, we said she was taking a break from serious relationships for a bit, but she had a few flings, uh, one with a doctor, another with a fellow journalist, and then with American businessman Lawrence Rockefeller, the third son of J.D. Rockefeller. I've been to his grave. <laughs> really? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's cool. Uh, where is it? Is it in New York? It, no, it's where I wouldn't have expected it. I think it's in sh- either Chicago. No, Cleveland. It's in Cleveland. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. There were like some really famous graves in that graveyard, and I was like, huh. huh. Interesting. I'm sure that's what people think when they're like, they're buried in Baltimore? Yeah. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> meanwhile, it's like Johns Hopkins. Yeah. <laughs> uh, then in 1954, she married the former managing editor of Time Magazine, T.S. Matthews. They were married for a while, but divorced in 1963. She continued her life of travel and danger, living in London and Kenya and Wales while constantly running off to various war zones. She worked for the Atlantic Monthly covering the Vietnam War and the Arab, um, Arab-Israel conflicts in the 60s and 70s. And she said that after the Vietnam War, she couldn't ever come back to the United States. She was just so offended by what we were doing over there. So right. she never came back, living the rest of her life in London. Um, and as she passed her 70th birthday in 1979, she continued working uh, covering the civil wars in Central America. And as she approached 80, she did finally begin to slow down physically, although she still managed to cover the U.S. invasion of Panama in 89. And in 90, she went door to door in the slum areas of Panama City to report on civilian casualties resulting from the U.S. invasion. When she reflected on her life, she did talk about the loneliness associated with it. She gave up a lot of things for her career, including being a wife and a good mother. But I think it's important to note that she ultimately gave up those things to tell the truth about war. She saw so much carnage in her life that she felt it was her solemn duty to report on the ugliness of war so maybe one day it could end. But she knew that that was never really going to happen. She once said, the ends never justify the means because it never ends. War happens to people one by one. That is really all I have to say, and it seems to me I've been saying it forever. Unless they are immediate victims, the majority of mankind behaves as if war was an act of God, which could not be prevented, or they behave as if war elsewhere was none of their business. It would be a bitter cosmic joke if we destroy ourselves due to the atrophy of the imagination. (sighs) Still so timely. Yeah. (laughs) She finally retired from journalism as the 1990s began. An operation for cataracts was unsuccessful and left her with permanently impaired vision. She announced that she was too old to cover the Balkan conflicts in the 90s, but she did manage one last overseas trip to Brazil in 1995 to report on poverty in that country, which was published in the literary journal Granta. This last feat was accomplished with great difficulty as her eyesight was failing, and she could not even read her own manuscripts. By the end, she could hardly see, and she was also suffering from ovarian cancer that had spread to her liver. So on February 15, 1998, she decided to end things on her own terms. She took a cyanide capsule and died in her home in London at the age of 89. Wow. 
Martha is largely forgotten, and when she is mented, mentioned, it is unfortunately as a footnote in Ernest Hemingway's story. She couldn't even get her own movie, and in <laughs> 2012, she was portrayed by Nicole Kidman in a film called Hemingway and Gellhorn. She did get an American Master special and was put on a stamp, but it seems a little lackluster who was present at most of the major conflicts in the last century. So to hammer home the point that she was trying to make throughout her career, I will end on an apt and timely quote from her. On the night of New Year's Day, I thought of a wonderful New Year's resolution for the men who run the world. Get to know the people who only live in it. Mm. I find her so interesting. I just see yeah. her like trudging through war zones and mm -hmm. into like important locations. She mm -hmm. was in the White House, mm -hmm. like around very famous people. She's reporting on Hitler before yeah. Hitler was a thing. <laughs> like she got, she was like, she got there first. Indy, yeah, Indy Hitler. Yep. She was there. I know. I, mm. yeah. Her, her story was very cool. But it was weird because, again, like, there are books written about her that, like, you know, I obviously didn't have time to read or access. But, like, there's was just, like, not as much information as I thought there would be yeah. on, like, her being at all these important places at, like, very important times. So, anyways, but, yeah, that's it. That's Martha Gellhorn. I mean, we had to have those stories written by someone. I'm sure that if we could, like, get onto, like, a microfiche and, like, look oh, at. Oh, yeah news stories like war correspondent stories we'd see her name all over oh, the place all over the place yeah all right let's get another drink and talk about another woman in history yeah I, my, mine is mostly tripping over sidewalk. We just have such uneven sidewalks mm -hmm. in Maryland. And usually I run on the edge of the street, but I can't in the morning because I like it's too dangerous. Well, like also now we're on slippery ice time. Yeah. So I'm there's black really... ice in the little wedges of the concrete. Uh -huh. It's crazy. I've been very panicked about ice. So <laughs> that hurt really bad. And then it was like even worse because producer stopped and he was just like, Oh my God. <laughs> like the fall was a fall and a slide yeah. on concrete. It was pretty <sighs> bad. Terrible. Um, we should say that your request was Kel from Instagram. Oh, yes, I'm sorry. Kel, thank you so much for requesting Martha Gelhorn. Because she was so fun. Yes, Martha was great. I've never heard of her before, and I can't believe it. So I'm glad we got to learn time. about her. But yeah, thank you, Kel. And who requested Margaret? Uh, Rebecca Denauer. Rebecca. So we've got a long list of people from a lot of our big fans, a mm. lot of our people who are on Patreon. So mm -hmm. we're just going to keep chugging through we're doing thank it. you so much <laughs> uh i should also say that uh sister and i re released the first couple episodes of our podcast Exciting. yeah i'm excited about it we're yeah. like getting all the kinks worked out uh -huh. figuring out how we want to do it like mm -hmm. what our intro is going to be yeah so i'm the name a, a pot of mass and methods <laughs> you know and Exciting. i think we're just going to read along the whole mass of her so i'm going to take her through every series if yeah. we ever get that far the books are all so long i re i i i want to get into the first series she wrote throne of glass yes throne of glass that um that's a big commitment it's a big commitment it's a lot of books, lot of books. there's a lot of novellas there's uh -huh. a lot of side chapters um and there's also like kind of like with the mcu there's publishing order versus chronological order and then there's like so many main characters that there's two books towards the end where one book is all about this person and one book is all about this person, but they're happening at the same time. So you can tandem read them like this is wild. every other chapter or something. It like <laughs> it's bananas. But the heroine from that series is who Sarah says is her favorite. Really? Yeah. Okay. So okay. anybody else who's into Sarah J. Mass, <laughs> come on over and listen. It's a very different podcast. We're much more serious, mm -hmm. much more like trying to like tear apart. Mm -hmm. But you can definitely hear the moment when Marjorie starts to like the books. Okay. It's, it's towards the end of the first book. I was going to say it has to be. Yeah. Because after we're under the mountain, like there's a lot of typicalness mm -hmm. to the first book. Oh yeah. And she's just like, I'm unimpressed, you mm -hmm. know? And then, and then things take a turn. It does. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, you can go over and listen to that. You can find it on our website. There's a whole nother tab to it, or you can find it on Apple podcasts. Perfect. So let's get started. All right. I want to talk about Margaret 
E. Knights. Good. Because I know she's like an inventor, but I, because I looked her up today, happenstancely, but I don't remember what she invented or what all she did. Perfect. She's a fun, fun person. Good. And you want to know what you're drinking? Yes. This is called Paper Bag Princess. (laughs) And Paper Bag Princess is actually a children's story that came out all like for fun gender roles, but it also applies to this story. So I wanted to use that title. I'm stealing it. I'm sorry, (laughs) but I am giving credit to your adorable book that is now in elementary schools all across the country. Mm -hmm. So this I got from Wikipedia, and then there's a really good um, 10-minute YouTube video by a woman named Joanna. Okay. And it's great, and she does these little cutouts and moves them around the screen, and it's the only YouTube video that's over a minute and a half long. Yeah. So this bio video was actually pretty good, and it took you through a lot of her life. All right. Oh, wait. What's in the cocktail? Oh, it is (laughs) bourbon. Lemon juice, simple syrup, and sage. <gasps> we had similar cocktails. We did. When you pulled yours out, I was like, oh. Mm. Mm. I like that, though. Yeah. I'm mm. getting those sage leaves down in there. I'm going to mm. make them taste good. Mm. Delightful. And then my other sister-in-law got me an ice press for Christmas. Yes. <laughs> so I pressed a little G. It says Greenwood Manor on our ice. So cute. Mm-hmm. I love it. <laughs> okay. So. Let's start talking about Margaret. Mm -hmm. Margaret E. Knight was born in York, Maine on February 14th, 1838. I have a fondness for anybody born on Valentine's Day because my grandmother was born on Valentine's (laughs) Day. So I'm annoyed that Margaret's middle name is not Valentine, like my grandmother. (laughs) You should have done something about that. Her parents were Hannah Teal and James Knight. As a little girl, they called her Matty with like two T's, Matty. Uh, and that was what all her parents and friends called her. And you do see that later in the articles, but I'm going to call her Margaret because a lot of the official stuff said Margaret mm-hmm. for the early 1800s. She was considered kind of an atypical girl because she would rather play with woodworking tools at her house instead of dolls. She said, quote, the only thing I wanted was a jackknife, a gimlet and a piece of wood. <laughs> now question mm-hmm. is a gimlet. A woodworking tool, or is she talking about the drink? It is a woodworking tool. Okay. So a gimlet <laughs> is like, you know the new things that open paint cans? Mm-hmm. They look like that, only it's made to drill a hole mm. in wood. It's like the loop at the top you can put your hand in, and then mm. you're pre-drilling a hole before the screw or nail goes in. Okay. I was going to say, because I was like, I feel like she cannot be talking about the gimlet cocktail. Yeah, I'm so <laughs> proud that I know what a gimlet is, actually. <laughs> I was like, oh, damn. And now we all know. <laughs> now we all know. what it. That's why you... You, listen, you tune in for the, the brief moments where Katie yes. and I have something enlightening to share. <laughs> okay. Her brothers loved having her as a sister because she was great at making toys. They would ask her for things, tell her what they wanted, tell her the design, and she would just make it for them. In fact, her neighborhood loved her because she specialized in really good kites and really good sleds. She's like Klaus. <laughs> exactly. <gasps> but I just can't like making sleds and kites for your entire neighborhood. That is so cool. And they were the like if you had one of her sleds, it was like the envy of the neighborhood. <laughs> you wanted to be on one of those. I'm so jealous of her. I know. Already. She's like <laughs> Already. she's like eight. <laughs> Her brother's names were Charlie and John, and together they were raised by a widowed mother. Margaret's father died when she was really young, and the family had to move to make ends meet. They moved to Manchester, New Hampshire, out of Maine, where her mom could get a job in a cotton mill. In terms of education, anything she might have gotten was limited to primary school because she had to leave school at 12 years old to also work at the cotton mill to make enough money to make ends meet for the family. Now, you talked about the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. This was during the Industrial Revolution, another crazy time in American history where there are limited to no laws in places to protect factory workers Women workers, male workers, child labor, um, sustainable employment, minimum wage. There's no unions. There's no overtime. Mm -hmm. It is just dangerous, extremely dangerous, where the employers only cared about efficiency of the product being made and not the people or 
the safety. We've mm-hmm. talked about the Triangle Shirt Factory. We've mm-hmm. talked about Radium Girls. We've talked about children, because they were small, would climb under these machines when they were broken to clean out the gears and get their arms chopped off. Mm-hmm. Like, this was a disgusting time in history. And I was thinking when you were talking about that famous photograph of the Great Depression, mm-hmm. a lot of her articles had famous photographs that she wasn't at or in, but famous photographs of that little girl standing in the factory, like staring out the window Mm -hmm. from during the Industrial Revolution. And they put that in a lot of her articles because they were like, this is the type of stuff that she was dealing with every single day. Mm -hmm. She's an inventor's mind. Like, get me out of here. I want to be learning. And Mm -hmm. she couldn't go to school. Um, But one thing she could do was imagine and like, understand machines Mm. so when she was 12 years old she witnessed an accident at the mill where she was working where an employee was stabbed with a steel shuttle that shot out of a mechanical loom when it became loose the device was never patented that she made because she didn't know what a patent was Mm -hmm. at 12 years old Um, and its exact nature is unknown However, it protected people in that workplace and was used in other cotton mills and on other looms. They believed the device either stopped the loom when the shutter got loose or she created a guard that would block the shutter from Mm. flying. But Mm -hmm. either way, it was protecting people from getting impaled with this flying shuttle. That's so cool. As a child. so horrific that she was like, oh, I just saw someone get impaled. I'm going to have to fix this. I can fix that. Why is that on her shoulders? <laughs> right. Why aren't the employers fixing that? There's, there's a, there are people that should, well, I guess there weren't, there were, wasn't safety protocol. There were no people in yeah. charge of safety protocol. So she was safety protocol. Oh my gosh. It just like, it's making me think of the quote we ended Martha's story on. Mm-hmm. It's like, if they would just remember that there are people mm-hmm. <laughs> living in this world, working in these factories who exist and right. deserve to be treated well. <laughs> People deserve dignity. Yes. Oh, God. Excuse me. (sighs) Unfortunately, because of health problems, Margaret couldn't continue working at the cotton mill. I don't Mm -hmm. know what it was. Maybe she was breathing in too much this or that. Mm -hmm. So in her teens and early 20s, she had to seek employment elsewhere. But it actually helped her get a better mind for inventing because she worked for home repairs. She worked in a photography lab with, like, experts. She worked in an engraving place. Mm -hmm. She worked in a place that did furniture upholstery, always with her hands, always working. Mm -hmm. In each of these, she learned more and more about machinery and how different things were made and operate. She was, like, watching the, like, um, God, what is that stupid Discovery Channel show? Um, Oh, how it gets made? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh She was, like, doing that, but in real life. (laughs) Like, at all these different factories. And, like, learning from it instead of going to school. Mm -hmm. This is really on-the-job training. In 1867, Margaret moved to Springfield, Massachusetts, and was hired by the Columbia Paper Bag Company. Paper bags at the time were folded in envelope shape. So they were really long and narrow, and they didn't sit on a flat bottom that sat upright so if you can imagine being at the grocery store the hardware store with some of these bulky items they had to like slide them into this Mm. envelope and then just kind of leave them laid down Mm -hmm. um and they did have machines that would fold bags like like that the envelope style bags but it was this one guy and it was three patents put together to make this one machine Flat bottom bags did exist, but were only, and they were in use in Britain since the 1840s, but they were a hand-produced product. They had to be cut and folded and glued all by hand, which made them terribly inefficient. And I would imagine expensive, too. Yeah, expensive to Mm -hmm. produce, expensive to use. Mm -hmm. So in 1868, Margaret decided to go through the trial and error process, known as iteration in engineering, in her home and invented a wooden machine that would cut, fold, and glue flat-bottom paper bags similar to what we use as shoppers today. You know, it's funny. I'm, like, imagining that thing that, like, they use it like Aeropostale. Yeah, like to fold t-shirts. To fold t-shirts. <laughs> yes. That's it. That's, um, it looks nothing like that. Okay. It's like a big upright wooden machine with like a wheel 
They have a model of it at the American History Museum in D.C., but it's mm-hmm. a smaller version, but it's a fully functioning model. That's like, it can still work. So yeah. you can go and see it if you're anywhere near D.C., a version of her machine. Very cool. So this machine enables mass production of bags and increases the speed of production and obviously the expense mm-hmm. of production. After building her wooden prototype that she decides actually works of this device, she takes it to work and starts using it at the bag company. No permission. At first, her boss is like, what the hell are you doing? This isn't cool. You can't just like bring this big bulky wooden device in here. And she's like, all right, let me show you what's going on and he sees it in action and he's sold he's like (laughs) use it use it in fact let me hook you up with a mechanic shop that can make a metal version of this for you so margaret is working with this machinist metal worker um to make a fully functioning version of the machine that could be sold and used in paper bag factories while she's working with this guy uh, another man who like comes in and out because he's a quote inventor named uh-huh. Charles Anan Anon walked in and he frequented that metal shop a lot to do things there. That's all I'm going to say about Charles for now. He's I- there. He sees this okay. machine being made. Can we can we predict yeah, the future? Gonna, <laughs> I was like, one of <laughs> you know, it sucks in these stories. <laughs> I feel like I'm playing Clue. Where I'm like, one of these men is going to fuck her over. <laughs> I don't know which one yet. Now I have a theory. We now, have I have a theory. A, now we have a strong front contender. <laughs> front contender. <laughs> front runner. Uh-huh. Uh, yes. Charles Anon. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Probably going to fuck her over. Oh, now okay. we just have to see if the other people are going to back him or not. We'll say Monopoly all over again. (laughs) (laughs) After Margaret's machine is turned to metal, she takes the model to the patent office, something she hadn't done before for her other Mm -hmm. machines. Well, she was a baby. Right. (laughs) She she was like, no, again, no teeth, once a hippopotamus, (laughs) (laughs) making machines that block shuttles flying through the air, the whole deal. She finds out when she gets there that she can't patent the machine because somebody has already patented a machine that's kind of like that. Charles had stolen her idea and or her drawings and patented the work by himself. And it's really weird because his machine didn't quite work correctly because he didn't copy it right. I That's what happens to cheaters. <laughs> you loser. <laughs> But Margaret is not going to go quietly. She files a patent interference lawsuit in 1870s. Charles argues a couple things. A, it doesn't work because a woman couldn't possibly understand the mechanical complexities of a machine like this. And B, she never could have made it because a woman can't understand the mechanics of this. Some historians argue he never said that. He just said that his machine was a different machine altogether. They love defending these men. I they don't get it. love it. They think it's great. I- <laughs> They're like, let me write a biography about Ernest Hemingway. <laughs> it's like we're so willing to like every woman who's done something cool to be like, yeah, but she did this one terrible thing. So like, let's just not even talk about her right. anymore. And like men do openly shitty things. And we're like, yeah, but that was a one-off. And, like, maybe they didn't even do it. He, so He never said that. Come that was on. layered on by the feminist agenda oh, later on. Winslib, at it again. Destroy the world. <laughs> so, Margaret is like, okay, this is absolutely ridiculous because I did iteration. And if you uh, don't know about en- engineering, it's pretty much a cyclical process where, like, you start. You make it, you see if it works, you see the piece that messes up, and if it doesn't, you make changes and start over. Mm -hmm. So she had done that. So she has hundreds of drawings of this machine from years and years and years getting better and better and better and better and the mathematical calculations and this, that, and the other. she doesn't even go to school. I know. How does she know? I don't know. (laughs) From the factory on the job learning. (laughs) It's from all that time blocking shuttles from impaling people's hearts. (laughs) So she is meticulous with her drew pl- blueprints and journals and models. Um, and she has them all to take to show the judge and the lawyers, as well as eyewitnesses, her boss and the metal machinist who decided to defend her. <gasps> they went on the stand 
and defended that she invented this machine. God bless them. I, I know. I can't believe I even suspected them for a second. I know. She is spending a total of $100 in legal fees a day, which is around $2,500 oh for in today's money for a 16-day hearing, which resulted in a victory. Oh, she won. Okay. She won. Okay, okay, okay. I thought it would be like, a victory for him. No, for <laughs> Margaret. A victory for Margaret. Thank God. And she received her very first patent in 1871. Good. Fuck that guy. Ugh. And then Queen Victoria gave her a medal what? from across the ocean. Oh, She's like, that's cool. cool machine girl. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know how Queen Victoria does. <laughs> With a business partner from Massachusetts, Margaret then established her own Eastern paper bag company in Hartford, Connecticut. She later got another patent for improvements to her machine. And although she did earn royalties for this paper bag machine, she just lived like a fairly decent life because Mm -hmm. in the contract or something, her... um, her royalties were limited at $25,000, like, total over a lifetime. So it was mm-hmm. enough to live on, but not, like, enough to live on solidly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She lives comfortably because, though, she continues for the rest of her career to just make various inventions, sell them to companies, get the royalties, and sell the patent sales. <coughs> Eventually, she's working in an office in downtown Baltimore. <gasps> I meant Boston. Oh. Take, take it back. <laughs> Bring it back in. <laughs> All right. <laughs> in the 1880s, Margaret designed three domestic inventions. One, she patented in a dress skirt shield. One was a clasp for robes, and one was a cooking spit, like for turning. Later, she worked in a shoe manufacturing company where she received six, pat- six patents for machines that would cut the materials that they used to sew shoes oh, together. cool. Then she, everybody wants her. Then she developed a number of components for rotary engines and motors with patents that were granted in the early 1900s. And one patent that was even granted after her death, like Mm -hmm. she invented this, we're patenting it to her name. And a number of machines, window frames, sashes, anything, anywhere she saw a problem. She was like, I could fix that. I can make that easier. I can make that more convenient. And she just kept making them and making them. So cool. However, her understanding of mechanical engineering was limited because of the lack of formal education. She mm-hmm. still ended up with at least 27 patents in her life and several inventions that she never patented at all. Wow. Margaret worked her whole life. And the New York Times said that she was working 20 hours a day when they talked about <laughs> Margaret. She was never very wealthy, but she lived more comfortably than other adults at that time, especially because she was a single woman without children. She never married or had kids and died October 12th, 1914, right at the beginning, almost the beginning of like World War II-ish, um, at the age of 76. With an estate worth $275. (laughs) So that's really what you left behind. Reflecting late in life, she said, I'm sorry I couldn't have as good a chance as a boy and have been put to my trade regularly. She just really wanted to be allowed to learn. But her legacy is very interesting. Knight faced certain challenges to being an engineer. At that time, women held an extremely small percentage of patents. In fact, today, women still hold fewer than 10% of the primary inventor patents. And she had 27 back then. Her obituary described her as the woman Edison, which, of stop! (laughs) Just call her Margaret E. Knight. I can't hard stop on the woman Edison thing. Also, he's a very controversial figure. Yeah, yeah. I guess but back then he wasn't. Yeah. yeah. Later in her life, her achievements were used in this example of why women should have the rights to vote during the suffrage movement. She was profiled in several pro-suffrage newspapers and magazines, um, along with other female inventors. She was also profiled in an article for the New York Times called Women Who Are Inventors, which rebutted an idea, the idea that females were intellectually inferior. There was a guy who wrote uh, an article, a physician, a doctor, who wrote an article that said women had their place in literature, yes, but not in invention. And he pointed out how few women artists, composers, inventors, chefs, and fashion designers there are. Of course, 
he thinks that's just because women aren't good enough, not because they're not given right. positions in which they can do <laughs> these things. Right. <laughs> there is a plaque hanging on Curry Cottage, recognizing her as the first female patent holder, although that's not entirely true. <laughs> it, that was either Mary Kice, Hannah Slash, Slet, Hannah Slater, or Hazel Irwin, but she was up there with some of the first. Mm. Her paper bags were later improved upon when the accordion fold that folded the sides in was added to her machine to make the bags more compact for shipping. However, the bags that we use now use the same, other than that accordion fold, use the same folding cutting mechanisms that they did, which is good because we've started outlawing plastic bags. I know, they're making a comeback. Yeah, paper bags are making a comeback. Baltimore County has outlawed Mm -hmm. plastic bags, so now we're all paper bag reusable bag friendly Mm -hmm. margaret was inducted into the national inventors hall of fame in 2006 and like i said a scaled down version of her machine is in washington dc if you want to see it that's very cool and that is the story (laughs) of margaret eloise knight that's so interesting i just i love people whose minds work in that very practical way of like they can see how things operate. Yeah. I can't do that. There's a, <laughs> I think there's a word for it where like you, like when you have a, this like sixth sense where mm-hmm. you can like, some people do it with music. Like they can mm-hmm. see the colors mm-hmm. of music and like she just, I, I think she could see inventions. Like I think Da Vinci was like that. Yeah. Uh-huh. He could see things before they existed and just then created them. Yeah. That's so cool. A All very right. interesting pair. <laughs> So now we need to talk about these two ladies in conversation with each other in a little segment we like to call Just the Two of Us. I mean, they were cool girls from a young age. They really were. (laughs) They started young, either at suffrage movements Mm -hmm. or working in factories. And I mean, do you think perhaps that your Martha like saw some of the propaganda about my Margaret yes. being pushed in suffrage movements. That's I, cool. I think it, either her or definitely her mother. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like they knew who Margaret was. Right. For sure. There's no way that they didn't, you know, I just like, I think that's so cool that we have some like waxing and waning women, mm-hmm. you know, like just as Margaret is passing away, like we get Martha, mm-hmm. you know, and that's really cool. Um, and, I also think it's very interesting how different their lives were just by that, like, you know, 50 years or so, you know, Sure. because I was thinking a lot about how Martha had the power to leave school because she's like, this isn't serving me when all Margaret wanted to do (laughs) was go to school. (laughs) Yeah. That gap in time, like a lot of women's liberation, uh, like with the roaring 20s really happened. Mm -hmm. Women got the right to vote. Women were cutting their hair short, going Mm -hmm. out and drinking with the boys. Mm -hmm. But even still, we saw Gimlet to Gimlet. You know, know (laughs) yeah, from the tools to the cocktails. Um, But even so, like Hemingway is the Charles Anon of the Uh story, like trying to take what was rightfully her achievement Mm -hmm. for themselves. Yeah, 100%. And I'm glad that there was, there were other men around to kind of like vouch for Margaret. And it, I I couldn't quite tell Martha had that same support network. It kind of felt like they're both very independent, but it kind of felt like Martha was a bit more, purposefully isolated Mm -hmm. you know i think so i think the only time i saw evidence of it is when the roosevelts Uh um like vouched for her but that may have only been because of eleanor yeah Mm -hmm. you know we don't know like fdr was kind of he won some he lost some in terms of Mm -hmm. like good things he did in his life so i i don't know but she did have somebody vouch for her at some point that's true yeah and they both just like threw themselves into their work. Like mm-hmm. they, I think, were two people who asked uh, forgiveness rather mm-hmm. than permission. <laughs> um, and they really got like they made those next big steps by just doing it mm-hmm. and like learning on the job rather than going through like a lot of training or anything, which I thought was very interesting. Sure. And they all they both stood up for themselves, mm-hmm. you know, like. 
Martha was like, this is sexual assault. Mm-hmm. I don't want that to happen to me. Margaret is like, no, you stole my idea. I'm going to sue you. Both of those things were dangerous in their time periods. Yeah. Suing a man and accusing a man of sexual assault. Both of those things are dangerous and scary. And they both were like, I don't care. Yeah. Well, and we see that Martha got fired for it. Right. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> thankfully, Margaret's story turned out different. But like, I was not convinced that it would. <laughs> when you were telling the story, I was like, she's definitely going to lose this court case. Yeah, and they were at really important times in history. The Industrial Revolution and the Great Depression and the, you know, World War II are some critical time periods in the 20th century. And these women were there and, like, trying to make them better because they were hard time periods. And what Martha said is that the children pay the price. Mm -hmm. And Margaret was one of those kids that paid the price. Exactly. Before Martha was even born. She was one of those kids in a factory, losing her education, not Mm -hmm. able to learn the way that she should have been able to learn. Yeah. Because of, like, you know, the way society was set up. Well, and I think you need both people. The people like Margaret who are like, I see a problem. I'm going to physically fix this Mm -hmm. by creating a better system. And then Martha, who's writing about it. I'm going to dismantle. Yeah. She's like, I'm going to use my words to open people's eyes and make sure that they know exactly what's going on. Yeah. And, you know, so we don't forget. Um, And they both worked their whole lives, even after like their big thing. Like Margaret could have just like stopped after the paper bag. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. I did the paper bag machine. That's that. But she didn't want to. And mm-hmm. Martha didn't want to stop working as a field journalist. Even when she was visually impaired. Yeah. Like, even she's blind. And <laughs> yeah. she's like, I'll go to Panama. I don't care. Like, which is crazy. And just a testament to how much they wanted to work mm-hmm. and make a difference in the world. Like, you know, we came across someone recently who was like, the government wants women to work so that they're out of the home and the government can control what children think or something like that. And I just like took such great offense to it. Mm-hmm. So it's like, do you know how many women like fought so hard for our right to have mm-hmm. jobs outside of the home? Like not that like women working from home or like being homemakers isn't important, but it's like also we fought so hard to have the right to get out of the home as well. Like, and it also be crazy. Like how hard public schools work to yes. not influence the bias of children. Like yeah. we have professional development seminars on mm-hmm. it, on like being inclusive, but not forcing kids to believe what you believe, especially as a social studies teacher. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like we get that all the time. Yeah. Like, so just to make a blanket statement like that is not only insulting, but in s- extremely ignorant. Yeah. It's so frustrating. So Anyways, but speaking of personal lives, they also both sacrificed their personal life for work. Mm-hmm. You know, like neither of them ended up really having a family. No. Yeah. Margaret never got married, never had kids, no relationship to speak of. Mm-hmm. I wonder if maybe she didn't want to. Like, I don't know if like yeah. she never it never came up in her story like they she was considered an old maid. I think she liked making enough money for herself. Yeah. You know, and living. But Martha felt lonely and she said she, she felt lonely yeah. that's sad because she did try relationships a couple times mm-hmm. but you know at that point the men specifically Hemingway that she married thought that she had to change for being married and if yes. that is the way the world worked then I think she was more willing to give up marriage than her career yep exactly what she had every right to do mm. all right I think we need to toast let's do it women Allie, who would you like to toast this evening? I am today going to toast to women who fight for the truth, who are like willing to stand up and say that's not true because Margaret did that. I'm going to toast to the women who are more than just a footnote in a man's story. They have their own stories and deserve their own movies. (laughs) Cheers. All right. Now, what are you enjoying in pop culture this week? So I know we've promoted this before, but I wanted to promote it because I just watched it with my kids Mm -hmm. and it's so good and so touching. Ted Lasso. We just finished it with the girls this past week Mm -hmm. and I love it. I love the multi-generational friendships. I love the multi-gender friendships. Mm -hmm. I love the both straight and queer relationships. Mm -hmm. It's just a good show where women are sharing their feelings and men are sharing their feelings Mm -hmm. and you know athletes and publicists and business people and Mm -hmm. it's really nice Mm -hmm. and inclusive yeah and I loved watching it with my kids more than I loved watching it myself perfect 
What do you got? I am going to promote uh, a podcast that I found this week called The Handsome Pod. <laughs> so this is Tig Nataro, Fortune Feimster, Perfect. and Mae Martin. <laughs> and the three of them are just talking. Mm. And then they get a celebrity question. So like it'll be like Jimmy Fallon or um you know like i think one of them was that like sarah silverman like mm-hmm. one of their celebrity people just ask them a question and then they talk about that but like mostly it's just them talking about their lives and i don't know why but it's the most relaxing thing <laughs> they're just like really they're all comedians sure so, so they're so just funny. naturally funny yeah and they're all like pretty dry which is my style mm-hmm. you know like i love dignitaro's uh brand of comedy um and yeah, I just, it's a very enjoyable listen. If you want something that like, isn't like a hard hitting podcast like this one. Um, <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Um, yeah, the handsome pod. I just, I love those three people so much and I mm. think that they make a great show. <laughs> mm. Well, thank you everybody yeah, for being here. For <laughs> We love you. We're so glad to be back. Mm-hmm. We've got a couple more weeks in this uh, season, mm-hmm. and then we're going to go right into season 17. Yeah. And just start <laughs> nailing the episodes yeah, out. Because we just took a big break. So, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, But yeah, we love you guys. Follow us everywhere. Um, you can vote on who made which cocktail when we post them on Instagram, which is always a fun time to see who knows us best. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you can... Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We haven't gotten one since, I think, like, May. So what is wrong with you guys? guys? Go out and do that, if you would please. Um, <laughs> and you can also join us on Patreon if you want to hear us talk even more about our personal lives and contribute to the cocktail fund. <laughs> <laughs> so we love you, and we want you to never forget that well-behaved women do not try to do work that's set aside for boys. They yes, never. never. And they rarely make history. Goodbye. You've been listening to Her Story on the Rocks. We are independently produced by 1986 Entertainment and proudly recorded in Baltimore, Maryland. If there's a woman in history you would like us to cover, you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com. You can also message us on Twitter or Instagram. We post all of our cocktail recipes on Tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us. See you next week. Bye.